This is part one of a two-part podcast. Hi, my name's Ryan. I've been a supporter of Paul's for many years now. I wish to get the podcast and video creation part of the system we call Paul back up to full speed. And I think Patreon support is a big part of that system. Go over to patreon.com slash Paul Wheaton. Make a pledge for each artifact that Paul creates. Again, the site is patreon.com slash Paul Wheaton. You can also find the link in the podcast notes. Enjoy the podcast. All right. I'm here with Alan Booker, and we're recording, Alan. It's now recording. And Okay. Normally, uh, we were going to take this time. We scheduled this time to do the Big Black Book, but instead what we're going to do is talk about wildfire stuff because I get asked a lot now because of all the wildfires that have been happening over in Oregon, and I'm kind of a little pissed off because I feel like we've had some wildfires in Montana a few years ago, and there wasn't this much interest. <laughs> and so I'm... I'm, ha- I'm kind of feeling a little pissy. Um, and when I check in with the people in, in Oregon or Washington or California about, like, okay, now granted, homes are burning to the ground. That is, that is very bad. Um, but when I check in with people to get an idea of how much smoke there is, it's like nothing compared to the smoke that we've gone through the last few years. And i got to say that, that in Missoula, the amount of smoke that we've seen in the last 10 years seems to me like 10 times more smoke than the amount of smoke that we saw 20, 30 years ago. Like, it's, it's 10 times more, 100 times more. But, but even more than that, in order to prevent wildfires, we're also seeing an enormous amount of smoke in January as people are trying to burn the fuels that would otherwise lead to wildfires. Yes. All right. I think there's also just the fact that the way that the press works in the United States, that a little bit of smoke blowing through a major population center like Portland is going to get a lot more attention than a lot of smoke blowing through homesteads in Montana. Yeah. And, and then, I, you know, we, we hear about what are the things to do to prevent this, and just so much of the details of what they do bothers me. And it's kind of like, oh, so I wanna, I wanna go into this, but just real quick, a couple, of, a couple of quick notes um, uh, outside of what what this podcast topic is about. One is, is I want to thank all the people for uh, ponying up coin for the Better World book uh, reprint. So I was getting low on physical books. And Christmas is coming, and I was thinking to myself, like, I don't know if we're gonna have enough books. So I put a shout-out, and I said, if I give you guys this sweet, sweet price, will you buy a dozen books, like, pre-order? Like, they won't arrive until around Thanksgiving. And um, <laughs> so we did a poor man's poll, and it's like, yeah, enough people want to do it. So then I said, okay, everybody, go ahead and put the money in. And, like, half of them did, and it's like, that's not enough money. <laughs> and so I put another shout-out, like, Okay, you know, I didn't get enough money, and on that second wave, wow, we got enough money. So we're good. I am just super grateful for my community <laughs> to, to um, help me out. Like, I was kind of freaking out there for a second, like, uh-oh. <laughs> so I'm super happy now that um, the, you know, because I had already put in the order 
for the reprint. They can, like, okay, all these people said they would, so I'm going to go ahead and put in the order. Then I said, okay, everybody, go ahead and send that money over. And then it was not enough. <laughs> Oops! Oh! Oh, no! So uh, now, now everything's good. So it's, uh, you're saying that it's easier to say than it is to pay. Well, and I was, I was kind of feeling a little ucky about that. Mm-hmm. Like, really, people are going to say that they'll do it, and when the time comes to put your money up, they're, like, not doing it. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of feeling like, is this my audience? And I was kind of sad. I was kind of like, oh, I thought my audience was fucking awesome. And and so then I put the thing out saying, like, oh, no. And then my audience showed up. <laughs> well, I, I think what you're seeing there is, is, is probably just the fact that the transaction friction of saying something on the forum is lower than the transaction friction of setting up everything and making a payment and so on and so forth. It's just more work. And so you know, it sure. takes people being more mindful to just get through that process and think, of, okay, how am I going to pay and, you know, da, 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 and so forth. And it is just to do a shout out on the forums. So it was, it was to, I mean, it, I, I needed, I needed X amount more and I got three X. And so the total amount of money that's come in now is double what was promised. Oh, nice. And so I am just kind of, I don't know, tingly, kind of numb, kind of tingly numb from like, oh, wow. <laughs> wow. So um, I don't know. I just, I just feel so good about my peeps. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so. Anyway, that's that's item number one. And then in a similar vein, the boot camp is full, and uh, there's there's now a waiting list. And uh, uh, so what we're going to do is is that um, when we have an opening, which we think there's going to be an opening in, um, I think it's five weeks. So three weeks before that, I'll send out an an email saying who is willing to be here on this date. And is going to be okay with taking a top bunk in the bunk room, <laughs> and uh, uh, and then who we who of all the people that reply within 24 hours, whoever's been on the waiting list the longest will be selected. And so, uh, Paul, I, I think you put that wrong. And see, so you're marketing it wrong. No. Instead of who's willing to take a top bunk, is you even get a top bunk, <laughs> as opposed to. Uh, the floor in the garage. <laughs> no, everybody remembers from, like, middle school camp that, you know, the top bunk was Primo Real Estate. Oh, I see. I see. You can even, you even get a top bunk. Okay, all right. Right. All right. I get it now. I get it. Um, therefore, uh, the thing I was getting to there is, therefore, uh, if you're thinking about joining the boot camp at any time in the next couple of years, it might be wise to get onto the waiting list early. Because I kind of think that maybe uh, several times a year we will send out one of these emails, and then, you know, you might get five or six and go, no, not at this time, not at this time, not at this time. And then when, then you get one, you're like, you know what, I'm doing it. And then when you say, I'm in, I, I want it, then you'll be the person that's the closest to the top of the list because you signed up early. Anyway, um, all I'm saying is is you might want to go and, and – uh, Put in your hundred bucks to 
to get in line at the boot camp. All right. Uh, that's all of my quickie notes uh, for, you know, just general stuff. And uh, let's let's jump into wildfires. Now, um, Alan and I have agreed to each come up with a little bit of design on the fly kind of stuff that fits into a podcast. And uh, we each have a criteria. We are, we both, we each own a million acres of conifer forest in Western Oregon. And one of the criteria is the government has agreed to fuck off and leave us alone. So we're not going, we're in Western Oregon. That's about climate. Like what are we going to do in that region uh, which has this particular climate package and it's currently on fire. Um, and it's like, uh, so, and, and we're not talking about how to put the fire out. We're talking about how to manage the land so that we can minimize wildfire damage. Yes. And, of course, just so everybody realize that, you know, we're, we're basically talking in generality that we don't, you'd have to actually see the specific piece of land to be able to do a really precise design. And number two is we have 30 minutes warning, so we are going to talk in general strategies and tactics um, in terms of what approaches might be the most productive. And we each have a million acres because we think that there might be some small bits that we'll do differently. Mm-hmm. And um, and there's probably going to be a lot of it that we're going to agree on, and it's going to be the same. So um, first I want to talk a little bit about what they currently do for wildfire defense. And, and that's considered general forestry practice, um, like like best best practices. And um, so currently the government will pay people to go and do a fuel load reduction. And so they're going to go and, and – uh, uh, thin the forest, and, and one of the techniques that's considered good forestry practice is logging. Now, granted, there are some that do clear cut, but let's, and then there'll even be some people that will argue that clear cut has massive benefits. And you know what? On a lot of that list, they are right. But let's not do that one. We're going to do the one that's considered good good forestry practice logging which is where you go into an area, and rather than clear-cutting, you're going to remove about a third of the timber. And you're going to leave the tallest, straightest, healthiest trees. So if you get to a patch, and there's like eight trees there, and you're thinking to yourself, all right, for this patch, I'm going to take out two trees. And I'm, I'm not going to take out, and in this patch of eight trees, there are two trees that are clearly really tall, really straight, really good-looking trees. Those are staying. Those are going to be my future seed trees. And then out of the remaining trees, there's this one over here that's got a little bit of a bend to it, and there's this one here that's got a fork in it. So so these two I'm going to take out. And maybe I'm going to come back in five years and take out two more. But... But for now, so I'm probably taking out not the tallest two, but but tallest numbers three and five, let's say. So I'm going to go for something that's not the tallest and probably something where it's like it's got something wonky with it, 
and it's like whatever the wonky is, I'm gonna pull a, I'm gonna give it a, I'm gonna hand it a Darwin Award. You're not gonna reproduce. So we got, we keep our best genetic material there. The next thing is, is that people will go in and, uh, and when you log that stuff, you're gonna end up with a bunch of branches. And what they do is they take all those branches and they put it in a big pile and they throw a tarp over it. And in the wintertime, they set that pile, they whip off the tarp and set that pile on fire. So the tarp keeps it all dry, and um, on, it keeps all the water off, uh, uh, and air can still get in there and dry out all that wood real well, and then they, they set it on fire in the wintertime, which is why here in Montana we have a lot of smoke in January. So um, the next thing that they do is that they do fuels reduction, which is to go in and they'll find dead trees or, or well, mostly dead trees, or small patches of trees where the trees – are growing so thick that probably 90% of those trees are going to die. So they go and they thin it out. They, they'll, thin, they'll take out 90% and, again, throw it in the big pile so it can be burned in the wintertime when you're not going to – it's going to – you can safely burn it. There won't be a forest fire because of all the snow. All right. Um, and then one of the things that, that is oftentimes advocated that is like – and it's also embraced in the world of permaculture as silvopasture. And that's where you reduce the total tree count by 75%. So you, you have one quarter of the trees, but the trees that are left behind tend to grow about four times faster. And you get a lot of sun that hits the forest floor, and so you can have pasture, hence silvopasture. All right. Uh, but that one's not done very often, but it's often looked to as like, oh, look up, this is this is a great destination, this silvopasture. So that's those are the things that are encouraged. Yes, but you have to remember the silvopasture silva attempts to create something almost like a savanna ecosystem, mm-hmm. which is a very highly functional ecosystem when it exists um, naturally, but it does require a complex ecological balance in order to sustain it so it doesn't either uh, you know success forward into full forest cover or fall backwards into pasture according to what the grazing and browsing pressure is I think uh, another thing to point out there is hey uh, Alan how well does civil pasture work with conifers uh, typically, that's not what you um, – that conifers are much farther forward in most ecosystems than um, savanna. They, they typically – you have an interceding successional of broadleaf um, and hardwoods before you get into a uh, climax succession conifer forest, and therefore – it's not normal to see a conifer savanna. Yeah, that would be an artificial environment, not a natural environment. Okay. I, I agree with your analysis, and uh, I think the answer to my question is I think conifer in civil pasture can be forced to work, but it's not going to work as well as um, other species. I, I no, I've... That, I've I've seen it be forced uh, by somebody who had um, a property with uh, very mature, what they, th- they thought of as very beautiful, you know, pines and grass underneath it, and they they loved that 
savanna-looking system, and uh, but boy, is that a lot of work to maintain. And that you couldn't do it over broad acre. Without I conifers, conifers make the the. I mean, they they are in their own way allelopathic. Yes, and and it's like the allelopathy of conifers is something worthy of a of six hours of podcast. Mm-hmm. And I wish to know the allelopathy better. I'm not sure how much work has been done to know the allelopathy of conifers, but just yeah, I think there's say there is an allelopathy. Yeah, and, and you know, just the highly fungally dominant soils also um, discourages a lot of other plants. And then on the flip side, you're talking about a savanna kind of ecosystem. You're also talking about grasses, and grasses have their own allelopathic um, chemical defenses to try to keep the trees from coming in. So one of the things you have to realize is, yeah, if you if you try to do a savanna system with with grasses and conifers, that you've got a sort of chemical warfare going on there as well. Yeah. Both yeah. ways. So there is one thing that is used rarely in wildfire defense, like, you know, how to how – to, uh, uh, prepare your land so that it's, it's more defensible, it's, it's less likely to be subjected to wildfire, less wildfire numbers. There's one thing that they do in the, in the current forestry practices that I think is, is quite fascinating, but it's, they're still just experimenting with it. And that is uh, the use of the masticulators instead of burning the stuff. And so they've got a machine where they'll feed junk pole and branches and all kinds of stuff into it. And it's kind of got a couple of rollers in it and a little bit of a, a chopper that doesn't chop all the way through. And so what comes out is the branch, like you'll feed in this big brushy branch, and what comes out is the same branch kind of flattened and, um, and it's got like little cuts in it all over. And it's basically set up so that the whole branch will lay on the ground flat and rot easily. And then what they found is that a year later, they can't set that on fire. Like, they'll go there the driest time of the year and try to set that wood on fire, and they can't get it to light up. It's still got enough water in it. It won't burn. And so in the meantime, it's breaking down and, and, and feeding the soil. Because I think one of the big things is the problems that we're having, which I, you know, when Seth Holzer was here in Montana, and I know I mentioned this in a podcast, and he was going, and I'm sitting in the car with him, and I'm driving him to something, and he just couldn't stop fucking bitching about our forests. And he's like, look how sick these forests are. They are I'm sure they're infested with bugs and funguses. They're dying. They are just sad and pathetic. And and I kind of felt like, yeah. Um, but, of course, we've had 150 years of forestry practices where what we do is we, we go into the forest, we get all the trees, we haul them out, and all the branches and stuff that were left behind, we put them in a big pile and burn them. So... All this carbon that was destined to go into back into the soil right there didn't. 
And then it's like, now let's repeat that a dozen times. Right. And let's so mine the, all the carbon out of the soil. So we, and that <laughs> will destroy soil life while you're at it, you know. Yeah. And we've converted our soil into dirt. Yeah. And so Mother Nature is kind of like, yeah, wow, you guys fucked this forest, man. But don't worry, though. What I'll do, I'll fix it. I, I'll fix yes. it. I got some bugs. I got some funguses. We'll just take those out. They ain't going to grow there anymore. We'll grow something else and, and rebuild that soil. And That's we'll right. We'll trees back later. Okay. Yep. We'll take oh. the take the forest out, and we'll we'll come back in with early succession and fix all the mess you created. Yeah, yeah. And so it's kind of like, and don't yeah. So the the fire is going to help take it out. The fire is going to fix this. You created yes. a big problem. Don't worry. We'll fix it. Mother Nature's stepping right in. I got this. I got this. You made a mess. I'll clean it up. <laughs> You will be amazed at how clean it will look afterwards. It'll be so clean. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then I'm going to grow all these other things. You'll see. So and this is maybe it's just a good point to just kind of throw in this idea because I think both of us are going to play off of it. Is that in a lot of these forested landscapes, they are fire dependent landscapes. You know, if you look at the ecology, the fire is absolutely part of the renewal cycle that nature uses, and um, there are boy this is this is something we could take on for a couple hours you know talk about all the ways in which fire interacts with the ecological systems in the landscape where there are it's a huge seed packs laying dormant in the soil many of which are fire activated you know right and right. when you get you get uh, the burning of um of of wood you get the creation of what we sometimes call wood vinegars, right, uh, which is uh, pyroligneous acid uh, that is um, kind of like a form of acetic acid with a lot of phytochemicals in it. And there are a huge number of, um, of seeds just lying there waiting for their chance. They know when the fire comes through and they get all that pyroligneous acid hitting them and everything else. Like, aha, now we've been waiting. Those trees have been up there holding on to this ecosystem. And now is our time to come out and do our thing and, you know, do our life cycle. And so, you know, this is the way nature fixes uh, the system when you get into these huge monoculture pine forests Fire is one of those ways, and, and all of the all of nature's arsenal to fix the problem is sitting there waiting, mm-hmm. and fire is one of the triggers. Now, <clears throat> this this brings me to the next thing that we're going to talk about, which is a, a two part thing. And then you went you you've kind of covered the second part now, but we'll 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 put some frosting on that cake here in just a second. But what happened? 500 years ago, because wildfires are not new. I mean, uh, wild, most, most wildfires, I'm going to guess, are caused by lightning. Um, I mean, the one that was near me the, uh, a few years ago, that was caused by lightning. Uh, but 500 years ago, there was a whole different human strategy. What did the humans do 500 years ago on our plots? 
Yep. Well, I went and when we brought up this topic a few minutes ago, I went and pulled my copy of Tending the Wild off the shelf. And if you haven't seen that one, for anybody listening, um, that's Cat Anderson's book. It's excellent. Um, and it's called uh, Native American, Tending the Wild, Native American Knowledge, and the Management of California's Natural Resources. And it does sort of concentrate on California, but a very similar regimes were used all up and down the western seaboard there. So uh, I would just uh, – I pulled out the appropriate passage, and I'm just going to, like, read a sentence or two, because this, this was – this is what they say in, in page 136 here. Uh, it says, Fire was the most significant, effective, efficient, and widely employed vegetation management tool of California Indian tribes. And then – down a little bit later, it says the acreage that was burned by California's earliest humans may have been significant. The fire scientists Robert Martin and David Sapsis estimate that between 5.6 million and 13 million acres of California burned annually under both lightning and indigenous people's fire regimes. Deliberate Burning increased the abundance and density of edible tubers, greens, fruits, seeds, and mushrooms, enhanced feed for wildlife, controlled the insects and diseases that could damage wild foods and basketry materials, increased the quantity and quality of material used for basketry and cordage, and encouraged the sprouts used for making household items, granaries, fish weirs, clothes, games, hunting and fishing traps and weapons. It also removed dead material and promoted growth through the recycling of nutrients decrease plant comp- competition, and maintain specific plant community types, such as coastal prairies and montane meadows. And I'll stop there, but that's just a short excerpt. So excellent book, highly recommended if you want more details on this exact question. Okay. Now, I think, I think the, the two points that I wanted to cover about what happened 500 years ago, you just totally covered. One is, is that what the human population at that time did which is they burned it. But, I mean, like, they would go and set it on fire, and then they would sit back and say, well, that what that forest fire didn't burn very big. I thought it would be bigger than that. And, of course, it would get stopped because it would bump up to the stuff that was from the burn three years ago, you know, and it would run out of space. It would, it would well, run out of fuel. And, uh, and sometimes they'd get a fire going, and it's like, oh, good, we've got a big one this time. Look at that. That's amazing. And, and again, it would, there were so many forest fires every year that uh, uh, wherever you went to try and start a fire, it would end up not going very far because it would end up hitting all the spots where there were the forest fires three years ago, ten years ago, whatever, and there wasn't enough fuel over there to keep going. Right, and there wasn't enough fuel to uh, flash over into crowning fires either in many cases. Sometimes it would, but in many cases it would remain a ground fire. And just just a quick note for anybody who may, may not be quite so familiar who's listening between the difference between a ground fire and a crowning fire, um, you, the types of prescribed burn fires that are used, like here in the southeast a lot where I live, um, 
are in t- are designed to be ground fires. They burn along the ground. Uh, they typically might lightly char the bark of many trees, and they take out a lot of the understory growth. But they don't get up into the crowns, the tops of the crowns of the trees, which is called a crowning fire. Very different fire you have when you get into a crowning fire versus a ground fire. So um, one of the things we should note is a, you know, a lot of the prescribed burns that are being done today and a lot of the ones that have been used by indigenous peoples around the world uh, for you know tens of thousands of years to work with fire dependent ecosystems, uh, they've known how to manage ground fires in a productive way uh, while limiting the flashover into crown fires where they didn't want them. All right. I want to move into our ultimate solution. And we have not shared our notes. We took a little, we took a a few minutes and we made our own little list of what we're going to do with our million acres. So Alan has a million acres and I have a million acres and it's all conifer forest. And so, um, and since, Alan, I know you've read my book. Not only did you read my book, but you uh, got an early copy and gave me a lot of feedback about the book. Thank mm-hmm. you for that. Um, so, you know, you probably have got a really good idea of what I'm going to say as my first thing. In fact, I'm going to, I'm going to ask you to guess what's going to be the very first thing I'm going to do. Um, that you are going to think about the best way to not have a conifer desert when you get done. Um, and it will be interesting to see what your very first approach to that would be. But, you know, the, I, I think that's, and that's, that's my first step as well, is, is like, you know, we have a conifer desert, basically. It's a huge monocrop of conifers. And... Um, if we if you don't address that as part of your long term solution and you're just basically you, you you're you're not what you're doing is you're hauling off and thinking of this forest in terms of a static ecosystem instead of the dynamic multi successional ecosystem that you really need and um so yeah i'm 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 just gonna say that and then kind of be interested to see where you attack first <laughs> i think I think, yeah, you dodged my question very gracefully, um, but, but you are right. That, that, is, that is my overarching goal is I want to I wanna eliminate the conifer desert. I want to make this land far more resilient. I want to make it moist year-round, um, things yep. of that nature. Okay, and I've got all kinds of ideas about that. But um, the very first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to divide this land into 100-acre parcels. Just like what I talked about in my book, um, I think the chapter is called Replacing Petroleum with People. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, in it, I'm addressing the question of what do you do with 20,000 acres? And it's like I, I break it up in the book. I said 200-acre chunks. And 200 acres is great. 100 acres is great. But the thing is, is that I think that what is causing forest fires right now is that there's going to be um, – a group of people who manage 20 million acres, a small group of people, like a dozen people, are going to manage 20 million acres. And I kind of feel like that's where the problem is. And, and instead, so what I want to do is I'm going to start by bringing in 10,000 people 
each person then gets 100 acres, and I want them to develop a relationship with the woodland. And, and that's where it's, it's moving away from forestry practice, which is like one person manages every 20,000 acres, to something I want to move in the direction of one person every 10 acres. And I want to start yeah. by saying one person every 100 acres, which is 100 acres, I believe, is still too much for one person. But I also believe that one person doing good permaculture stuff, like if I take, if I went and I yanked up Bin Law from England, yank, and then I, I stuck him in the ground on 100 acres in Oregon, and it's like, there you go, Ben. Do a good job, will ya? I can't help. There's there's several things that are going to happen. First of all is, is that I think that Ben's, Ben's going to take care of that plot of land so that five years down the road, it is going to be very for, very wildfire resistant. And I also think other people are going to be drawn to hang out with Ben and be part of his woodland care environment. And now, you know, by the time he, by the time Ben's been there for, for 10 years, there will be a total of 10 people living year-round on that 100 acres. So he has accomplished the one person for every 10 acres instead of one person every 20,000 acres. <clears throat> Yeah, I would also make a little side note. You mentioned that, you know, forestry model is one person managing 20,000 acres, but they're not really managing 20,000 acres. They're managing the wood product extraction on 20,000 acres, which means it's, a, it's, it's they're, they're, they're managing one very narrow slice. Yeah. Uh, and, and not even thinking about all the other pro, uh, products and yields. Uh, from that 20,000 acres because you can't. You, you can't think about all the possible ecological products that come off of 20,000 acres. You're just like, how much wood can we extract for industry from that? That's forestry. I, or old-style forestry. You are Old-style forestry. Getting, it's getting better, but it's, it's still a lot too much that direction. What they got out of the land was money. Yes. And, and there's a lot of money they left on the table. Yes. And it's like, but... Hey, uh, there was nobody offering to pay them by the hour to go do something with mushrooms. You know, there was all the other possibilities that they could have done with that land. And the and the and the thing that we're I think I want to paint a picture of is that um, for a timber company, for the thing that I'm proposing, then it's like I wonder if there's a business model that we figured out so that the timber company could make more money by bringing more people in to to develop a relationship with the land. And um, and it's like, so anyway, this is, I mean, and this might be kind of fantasy dreamy or whatever. No, that conversation's actually happening now. Um, I, I know some folks that are actively working with and, and um, consulting with the forestry companies, and they are... You know, the forestry companies now are beginning to become more open to these conversations because they're realizing that a one-dimensional management of the forests that they are working with does leave a lot of money on the table. Um, 
and that there's there's possible, especially as now that there's interest um, in the ecological value of forests and all the other, quote, ecosystem services they provide. This podcast is continued in part two. Don't forget, go out to patreon.com slash Paul Wheaton and make a pledge for future artifacts.